Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. Our next piece is entitled Brook Boring on Felt and Terrant Comptometers. This conversation was conducted on July 11, 2006 by Digibarn curator Bruce Damer at the Digibarn's first open house of 2006. Let's listen. First thing that started me, I'll start recording, it was the J model comped upstairs. Yeah. It was at a garage sale in the 80s, and it was $10, and maybe that was too much to pay, but it was such about a... About be- the same today. <laughs> but it was such a beautiful thing that I, I I bought it, and so I had that in the 80s, and that kind of got me interested in starting to collect, and when I was working with Xerox, we'd see things like the Alto and all those things from Park and the Star and the viewpoint systems, and... It was fascinating, and, and throughout the 90s, Xerox, all that stuff went away. Xerox abandoned their whole platform, pretty much. They went to Windows 3 point whatever, you know, from an incredibly advanced system. And they started checking all the stuff away, and I thought it was terrible. And the Star and all that. The Star and the Altos, and all that stuff went to the Scrappy. Yeah. What and year was that? That would have been the mid-90s. Oh, yeah, so I said, you know, nobody, you know, no one's doing the Xerox history. So I started doing the Xerox history, but the first the first machine in the collection was a J-model comptometer. And um, so shortly around the time of, when I when I started the project officially, it was 1998, uh, when I bought this place and I set up the DigiBarn site. And one of the first things that I mentioned on there was the comptometer, and I guess you were... Brooke had built a collection of comps, and and you found my site somehow and sent a comment in, and I thought, my goodness, as a comptometer expert here in Aptos, here near near us, and uh, still alive. <laughs> and so it was, it was great. So we we always planned to get together because I knew my J model didn't work, and I we finally got together and. Brooke was generous enough to give me these comps. The J-Model I have originals upstairs that never had a handle either, so it's right. completely jammed up. So these these were this one doesn't work because it needs this is needs electric connection, um, but the rest of them work. Uh, and so anyway, I, I thought it would be cool if Brooke could actually show us uh, how tell us about felt and Tarrant and comptometers and how they how these guys work. Sure. Um, these machines you see here are the, uh, the tail end of the, what I call the shoebox era. They sort of look like shoeboxes. Um, after that machine uh, came World War II, and uh, they started with new models. They were streamlined and rounded. You may remember some of them. They're typically green. But these, uh, my interest in the machine and the history sort of ended with these. Um, the founder is a fellow by the name of Dor Felt, who at the age of 24 invented the first machine back in 1884 or 18, patented in 1886, started in production in 1887 um, by taking in a half-partner, fellow by the name of Tarrant, Felt and Tarrant. And uh, Tarrant provided the money, and Felt provided everything else. And um, he continued essentially to own and operate the company as a private company until his death in 1930. 
um, there were four or five models that preceded these models that you see here. I believe one of these is an F model, the one with the, uh, this one. Yeah. Yeah. The handle is at the rear, and it's a double throw, it's a double throw clearance mechanism. The handle is only for the, th for the clearing of the, of the dials. It was all before. The numbers were all entered directly. When you press the key down, it turned the gears and entered the numbers and so on and so forth. they added incrementally. Um, in, the, in the very earliest models, the very earliest models, the, um, the carry mechanism wouldn't allow you to do multiplications like, you know, you could do this and then move over, do one more and move over and do another one. That would be, that would be the way you would multiply. But the earliest models couldn't do that. It wasn't until 1904 that they, he introduced a model that would do that. Anyway, um, around 1914, this model came out and has this red button on it, and it was a rather exotic feature that allowed, allowed errors to be detected and corrected, which is very important. Um, let, let me put this in scope. This is obviously not a personal adding machine. This was not a personal adding This was a business adding machine. And the business that the, the, the um, need it addressed was back office data processing. Now, another fellow right around Dorfeld's time was a fellow by the name of Howarth, that most people will remember much more than they remember Dorfeld. And he invented a, a machine to do similar work to do back office data processing work. And uh, for the next 50 years, essentially, uh, Dorfeld's comptometers and IBM's tabulators, power with evolved into IBM, uh, were roughly equal competitors for that business. Uh, Dorfeld had to establish schools to train these operators. Operators typically ran these like touch typists did. They never looked at the keyboard. They looked at the listings that they were entering in, and they would have 50 or 100 items in the listing, and the total had to come out right. So they had to be very highly trained operators, and uh, the customers couldn't train these people, so he set up schools. And this was a worldwide school system. At one time, it was the largest private school system in the world. And he made money off that as well. But um, what happened, of course, well, why does nobody ever re <laughs> remember about any of this stuff? Well, uh, this went on in, they were a successful company. It went on into the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And about in the 50s, both the tabulator and the comptometer and its, his operator, which made the system there, um, both fell victim to, guess what, the computer. <clears throat> the mainframes came in and just wiped them all out. Within about 10 years, they lost 90% of the business, both of them, tabulators and comptometers. And, and Brooke, you mentioned that because Felton Tarrant uh, 
pay dividends on their stock? They didn't have any money left for investment? Yeah, that was the other thing. It was a private company all along. And uh, Tarrant owned 50% of the stock and did nothing for it. And uh, the, the descendants of both Felt and Tarrant were essentially living off the dividends and living high off the dividends in the Depression when everybody else was groveling. And um, they were quite forgiven them for that. And at, while that was going on, IBM was holding on to their money. So come after the war, and the relay computer turns into an electronic computer, thanks to Markley and uh, what's his, what's his Eckert. name? Eckert, right, up in Philadelphia. Um, and the, the computer starts to be a real thing, even though the man that was in charge of Felton Tarrant sort of recognized the importance of this and tried to do something about it. He simply didn't have the money. He gave $250,000 to Illinois Institute of Technology, which was his alma mater, to develop an electronic computer. And they worked on it, and they did well. The problem was, it was with vacuum tubes. And about the time they finished it, it became clear that that wasn't the way it was going to go. They didn't have any money to redo the engineering and so forth. And all in all, they, they really fell out. They would have been a good competitor they didn't have quite the technology that IBM had because tabulators are always electromechanical. So they were always something you plugged into the wall. You don't plug these in, or you didn't plug that in. That was a motor-driven machine, but it really wasn't necessary. Uh, but a tabulator had to be plugged into the wall. So, so their technology was there, but that was never the key element anyway. Lots of people had technology to make computers in those days, as we all know. The real key was marketing. And Felton Tarrant had entry to all these big companies, all but the very biggest companies uh, these, these computers were in, I mean, these, these computers were in. So when the computer market opened up, they could have been a viable competitor for IBM, but they just didn't have the money. And perhaps not quite the vision. So, Brooke, maybe uh, give us a quick, um, quick demo how these work. Oh, okay. That'll, that'll be good for the... For I the guess you understand that they're all key-driven, and none of them had a listing device on them. The thing about it was, you know, they worked the way I, I said that they would all win. All right, so... As you... Okay, as you press down, nothing happens on these. I don't know if you know it. Well, you can't can't notice it. Now. But anyway, when you, when you press down, the zero does not change. It changes when you release it. Now, the reason that was important was because for multiplication, if you and the way you multiply is you put in one value with your fingers and you hit the number of keys with the let's say the three is the far right of the multiplier. And you shift over, and let's say 2 was the next one. You shift it over again, and say 7 was the next one. And then you, you would get the answer. Now, the reason that worked was because by waiting until all the keys were down to record anything in the registers, he could then, the mechanics underneath here, would control all the carries. 
and they will all go at the same time. If you didn't do that, if you didn't get the carries all your ducks in a row, you just weren't going to have the right answer. And as I say, it was it was the A model in 1904, introduced in 1904, that that allowed that to happen. Before that, he he was only moderately successful. And the handle is just a clearing mechanism. The handle is the clearing mechanism. It's the only thing it's used for. And uh, in 1912, Burroughs and uh, William Burroughs invented his adding machine, which is essentially a listing machine, right about the time that Dorfeld invented this machine. <clears throat> and it's my um, conviction that his partner, Tarrant, convinced him that he should make a machine with a listing device on it. And that they called that the Comptograph, because graphing, you know, printing, and so on and so forth. And Dorfelt worked on that for about 15 years and never was able to bring off a machine that could compete with the Burroughs adding machine. Mm -hmm. Because he, the mechanism, the concept in here, just didn't lend itself to, to adding on a listing device. It just didn't make any sense. In the first place, you had to put it all in, and then you had to crank it in order to get the, the printing. In other words, the key driven wasn't going to wasn't going to list anything here. It's okay for a dial, but it wouldn't list anything here. So you had to crank with each one. Well, this was a failing of the adding machine, too, but the adding machine didn't need to register because it would have the printing machine. So it had an economic advantage there. Plus, it addressed a different market. Yeah, uh, Burroughs captured the banking market, particularly, you know, because people weren't talking about money. People want a receipt for their money. They like to see things going on. And these old big Burroughs machines, you may remember the pictures of them. We ought to have one of those here. Right, right. <laughs> With the big, thick glass sides on it and so forth. People could see the mechanism going, you know, and then the, the tape would come out and they'd get a copy, you know, that would be just great. So they had that market, but they, they weren't into the, into the back office market. But like all good companies, Burroughs around 1912 said, hey, guess what? Felt's patent original patents on this comptometer just expired. Which is uh, 1887, I think we see here. Yeah, 1887 was the first uh, first patent dates, right? So by 1912 or thereabouts, the 17 years had run its course, and uh, Burroughs decided to do their own. And that was, they said, why not? You know, we don't even have to open schools. Phelps got all the trained operators. We'll just make a cheaper, better machine and, you know, undercut them. Great market. They did it, but unaccountably, they made the shape of the box almost identical to this. I don't have any pictures or examples of it because they're very rare for a reason that will become clear. Felk sued them in court immediately because it so happened in his 1904 machine, he had patented, among other things, the shape of the box. <laughs> and it was just a dumb thing for Burroughs to do. And so immediately they had to draw them all back in. So there weren't very many of them around. No. They were pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, but from the standpoint of Burroughs as a business, they didn't care. They redesigned it, giving it rounded corners, a flatter contour, and actually a better machine. A little bit like what Steve Wozniak did with the Apple II. He made, he did what he thought he could do with the Apple I, 
And then when it was out there and so forth, he started having ideas. Oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, and we could do this and we could do that. So the Apple II was a much improved machine. Same thing happened with the Burroughs calculator. They had an opportunity to go back and redo various things. And so they, they sold, they were a competitor, and about the only real competitor that, that Felton Tarrant had, only real direct competitor that Felton Tarrant had. One of the things about this company that I found most interesting was it was a private company, whereas Burroughs was a, was a large multi-corporation on the stock exchange and everything all those years. And there are, over the years, you see examples of a few uh, founded and lifetime CEO companies. One of them, of course, was Henry Ford, right? He owned the company. For a while, he didn't own it at all. But in 1919, he got it all back because he couldn't agree with his board of directors. And he said, listen, sell out to me or I will throw all my stock on the market and you can have the company for what it will be worth by the time the market absorbs my stock. And they said, well, I guess we'll take our money and go. And he did. And he regained total control of the company at that point. Uh, another another one of the like you know, would be uh, Edwin Land, Polaroid. He invented it himself, founded the company, CEO for life. Uh, so these these men I admire very much. Um, incidentally, they, the Felton Tarrant was a good partnership, but uh, after Felt worked for that 12 or 13 years on that disastrous Comptograph that never did work. He and Tarrant had a parting of the ways. Uh, Tarrant decided to take the Comptograph company and try to do something with it. And Felt said, I want to stay with this, and I want to incorporate a lot of the ideas I haven't been able to incorporate because I've been working on this other crazy project. And um, so what happened was Felt got 51% of Felt and Tarrant, and Tarrant got 49%. And Felt got 49% of Comptograph, which he didn't care about, and Tarrant got control of Comptograph. So they went ahead for about eight or ten years, and Comptograph just didn't go anywhere. And so Felt reabsorbed it and wrote it off, wrote off the machine, but gave Tarrant back his 50% of the combined companies. He was a very generous man in that respect, because there was no reason he had to do that at that point. Uh, Back in well, 1960, I was working for, uh, in high school still, I was working for the uh, California Division of Highways. And we used adding machines. Uh, they probably were burrows like that. They were, they were the only desktop thing you had back then, except the slide rule. Well, the Victor made an adding machine. Oh, uh, okay. Pretty competitive. Okay. We should probably start our tour of the Digibarns, because I think people are getting baked a bit. I but, guess so. But yep. this is, thank you very much. Thanks for letting me get this on video and, and for the, the podcast, Digibarn Radio. So thank thank you, Brooke, and thanks, everybody, for for being a part of this. It's really interesting to me. I mean, it, when you look at the oh, computers yeah. no, in there, great, and, great. No, you know, great. they they came from somewhere, and this was a, this yeah. was a 70, 60, 70 years of, of you know, what, what is it? The There's some estimate by when... Uh, calculations, the, the majority of, of office calculations were done by either electromechanical or mechanical means, and then the uh, computers succeeded them. But it wasn't 
until like the 60s or something because yeah. everybody was using mm-hmm. those and cash registers were were mechanical or electromechanical electromechanical so, so motor driven so the, the computer era the silicon or the vacuum the transistor based computation era really didn't didn't succeed this era until probably the 70s i would think uh, there were still machines, and these things are still yeah. operating in the early 70s. Yeah. I've heard from operators who when, said they were When I went dead. to Czechoslovakia in 1990 to set up software labs, which is another answer to my, my story, um, it, this is what people used. I mean, you go into the store in the Eastern Bloc, and it's, you know, cash registers, if they had them, they were all... Like MCRs. Interestingly enough, that was true. Uh, these things permeated the Europe and uh, and India, particularly because yeah. India was what, yeah. owned by England. And, and you didn't have to worry about power failure. Right. That's <laughs> you right. keep doing. But they never, but they never penetrated the Asian market. You know why? Because of the abacus. Right. Yeah. The abacus was just as efficient <laughs> when you learn how to run them. Yeah. Did Felton did they evolve into a cash register type of thing with this at all? Nope. Or anything? Okay. Never did the cash register. Right. Nope, they never did. Uh, Victor, which was a very uh, tough competitor for Burroughs after 1920, um, did did have a connection with a uh, cash register. I forget the name. There. I'm getting a block on the company. McCatchy, I think it was, cash register company. And Victor got together and they came up with a combined right. And they they went after the NCR market uh, at that time. But what was the yeah. one that had the thing across the top with the numbers? Ah, that that's had? a different uh, animal. Those yes. are those are electrical mechanical calculators, the Frieden and the Marchant. Great machines, right? But they were individual machines. You didn't have to be trained. Right. Like you had to be trained on these. Uh, I ran one in like I ran a building department yeah. and that's, that's shipping that's department. And, and you showed a little bit about how to yeah. use it. Well, they were great multipliers. Right. And you, right. And you fixed these, right? You were, you were Well, I was a service guy for about three months after the war. Uh, I had a job just service. In my, I mean, what you called an oiler. We'd come into the, the shop <laughs> and they'd have girls. Yeah, I never knew how to repair them particularly. And uh, the girls hated us when we came into the shop. The reason why, they would all be able to take their break together ordinarily. But when we came in to do an oiling job, I would go first to one girl and say, I want to take your machine, I want to clean her up. She would have to take her break then. And then I'd go to the next one and she'd come back. So they never got to take their, their break together where they could gossip. And so they really didn't like us coming Here, in. Let's, let's finish up uh, with Push some keys and run the the yeah. handle and everything so I can get the sound of it because it's a Whoa. I see more. the sound. See the numbers rolling in the registers here. Right. Okay. Uh, the adding's happening. You can roll off the overflow. Overflow. Right. Now you're overflowed on all And to clear it, some of them have a yeah, some of them have a bing cell. Yeah, well this was a later model. This is a much easier clearing model. Yeah, a nice ding. Well that's the sound of the comp. And with that we have to start our Digibarn tour. Thank you, Brooke. Well you're welcome. Yeah, thank you.
You've been listening to Digibarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the Digibarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in. 